Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs keys to bilingual evaluations and strategies for intervention. I am your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. As a reminder, if you are joining us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says quiz before the end of the day today on your speechtherapypd.com account. We encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer throughout the episode or at the end of the episode. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. There are no non-financial disclosures to report. Dr. Christina Saldana is a full-time lead bilingual SLP with the Forsyth County School District in Georgia. She is the owner of Bilingual Resources for Therapists and Teachers and co-authored the Bilingual Communication Assessment, of which she receives royalties from its sales. Dr. Saldana receives an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this presentation. Dr. Saldana's non-financial disclosure is that she is a national mentor for the BEAM Mentorship Program. And now we welcome our guest today, Dr. Christina Saldana, PhD, CCC, SLP. She comes to us with over 20 years of experience working with bilingual clients in hospitals, school systems, skilled nursing, and private practice. Along the way, she could not find functional bilingual therapy tools, so she created several on her own and has published 13 therapy and assessment books with functional therapy activities. We are so happy to have you on Keys for SLPs to talk about bilingual assessment and intervention. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much. I feel so grateful to be here tonight. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. And I have to say, it's been so fun getting to know you as we prepared for this podcast. So I am super excited to dig in here. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Tell us about your journey as an SLP. How, how did you become an SLP? How did it begin? Let's start at the bachelor's degree. I was one of 10 Hispanic young ladies recruited to attend the communication disorders program. This was at Mercy College in New York in 1995. My very first client at the school clinic there was a 10-year-old boy who was deaf. His mother had passed away. His father abandoned him with his grandfather, who his grandfather was a widow. So there was no grandma in the picture either. The grandfather brought him into the clinic and he told us he needed the boy to learn how to speak. He wanted him to say words because he was refusing to learn sign language. So I did my best to teach him the sounds that were the easiest to see and feel. And I'm telling you this story because this is what made me fall in love. Because when I was recruited to the program, I knew nothing about speech language pathology. My father had just passed away. We didn't have money. And I took it so that my mom wouldn't have to work three jobs and help put me through school. And because of this boy, I fell in love with speech therapy. I taught him how to distinguish between the easy sounds like the B and the M. So for example, I'll just give you a quick example. I know we have some SLP students here. So the B, if you feel your nose, 
but saying the B, it nothing happens. There's no vibration. But if you say the M, 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 there's vibration on the nose. So that's how he started learning to say, for example, Papa versus Mama. They have the same placement, right? The B and the M and the K and G also, they have the same placement. So I would distinguish the G and the K. The K makes no vibration on the neck and the G does. That was something I remember about this boy. It was wonderful. It was at Mercy College that I obtained a certification as a teacher of the speech and hearing handicapped. And I also received my Spanish extension. The sad part about this is that I was the only one in the group of 10 Hispanic women to move on to the master's degree. Wow. And at the master's degree, there was one other young man who was Hispanic in the program but we were in different years. So I don't know if he was able to graduate. The master's degree was tough. Let me talk to you a little bit about that one. I think the hardest class for me, not the hardest, but the one that stood out the most to me was anatomy and physiology, because we had to do that class with a lab and human cadavers. So it was the late 1990s. I don't know how things are done right now. (laughs) Many of the students dropped out of that class. The lab smelled so bad. It was nauseating. And when we were done, we had to run to the dorm and shower each time (laughs) in the lab. We were forced. This was the first thing we had to do. We each were given a cadaver and we had to carefully slice each layer of the skin on the cheek. We opened the chest area and had different... I mean, we each had different things to do, but we all had to identify the organs of the body. And then it was not easy learning the cranial nerves and their functions. When I graduated from my master's at Southern Connecticut State University, I traveled to Mexico for work. My mother thought I was crazy. (laughs) And I think looking back, I think I was. I flew to McAllen, Texas, and there I crossed the border by bus. I was all by myself. I contracted with a hospital called La Carlota, and that is in Montemorelos, which is about an hour from Monterey, Mexico. I was the only SLP for probably 100 miles is what the doctors told me. And my first patients included a middle school age deaf boy who wanted to speak, an elderly man with aphasia, and a toddler with Down syndrome. Wow. Those were my first patients. And I also volunteered at a nearby elementary school. I don't know how things are done now, but at that time, there were 50 students per teacher. No food was served. A lot of the students showed up to school without breakfast, and they had to wait to eat until they got home. That is where I wrote my first book. And it was based, well, I wrote it based on the needs that I observed from the younger students. The book was called Estimulando el Lenguaje en los Años Preescolares, which means stimulating language in the preschool years. So it was a recipe book for parents of activities to do at home with basic objects that every household would have. When I got back to the States, Larry Mattis, he's the owner of Academic Communication Associates in California. He got a hold of the book and he contacted me And he asked me if I would co-author a book with him on assessment. And I was thrilled. I said yes immediately. That is how our popular book came to fruition, the Bilingual Communication Assessment Resource. And That is a fascinating story. Wow. That's how I got my start. Wow. We didn't get a chance to talk about this, any of that before tonight, so... That is so interesting. Why did you, were you doing your CFY in Mexico or that was your first actual paying job? This was my paying job. Okay. Okay. And I had already started working in New York in a school district. Okay. And then I took a break from that and went to Mexico. Okay. Okay. And what, at the time, what was your inspiration for going to Mexico? Well, I think I always wanted to work with disadvantaged children. And there was a church that was affiliated with mine 
that I knew I could go and find work nearby and have people who could somehow have me around for protection. Mm -hmm. So that Mm -hmm. is really why I chose to do that. Well, we're so glad that you did. And how neat that your first publication came out of that experience. Yes, it was a blessing. So you first, then after that, you started working with adults and also realized that there was a need to develop some therapy materials. So can you tell us about that experience and maybe some case studies as to you know why you developed those materials or, or how they helped your patients? Sure. Okay. I will briefly mention what SLPs need when assessing bilingual adults. And then I'll talk briefly about treatment afterwards. Is that okay? Yep. Yep. That's great. Okay. So number one, you need to make sure the clients understand the medical condition they have and that they understand assessment questions. Medical facilities should have access to translation agency. And if you're not sure, ask the registration department where you work. A lot of these places have translation services. Another thing I want to mention is you should conduct patient interviews to get an idea of their concerns and needs. And if the patient cannot speak or participate, then conduct a caregiver interview to find out about the patient's routines and the family's needs. That I thought was the most valuable part of assessment. And three, we are obligated by the code of ethics as per ASHA, and I'm reading this from what ASHA wrote, to provide culturally and linguistically appropriate services, regardless of the clinician's personal culture, practice setting, or caseload demographics. In providing services to bilingual individuals, SLPs must consider a couple of things. SLPs should select and interpret culturally and linguistically appropriate assessment materials, tools, and methods. They must also instruct and assess clients or patients in direct clinical techniques using different measures. In other words, use more than one tool to target a specific area of need. And they must administer and interpret standardized self-report measures of communication difficulties. So client checklists, interviews, and self-analysis questionnaires are a large part of the assessment and treatment. If you happen to be a bilingual SLP, then your job's a little harder, right? You have to be able to independently provide comprehensive diagnostic and treatment services for speech, for language, for cognition, voice, and swallowing disorders in the client's language and preferred mode of communication. That is what our job is. So how do monolingual SLPs select, administer, and interpret formal and informal assessment procedures to distinguish between communication differences and disorders? There are many adult assessments for speech and language, as well as cognition. I don't know of any test standardized in Spanish unless you're lucky enough to obtain it in another country. I could be wrong, but that is, as far as I know, there is no standardized assessment. So if you don't have access to an interpreter, assessment and therapy can be difficult. So due to the medical needs of the client, speech therapy can be authorized in any of the settings, right? In hospitals, skilled nursing facility, or clinic setting. But in that case, use as much of the client's native language to provide speech therapy. So now I'll explain therapy. The ability to communicate effectively is important at any age. But for seniors, it can be vital. For the elderly, they have to successfully do several things, okay? They have to describe their wants and needs. They have to tell if something hurts. They have to request items, respond to questions, manage their finances, and manage their medical issues. That's a lot. In general, therapy focuses on improving functional communication, cognitive skills, and feeding techniques. This is whether they have a stroke or dementia or side effects to medications. But because of their age, their vocal cords might become less elastic, their laryngeal muscles may weaken, their voice might change, or they can't swallow as easily as before, and that's frustrating. In the clinic setting, I provided therapy to an elderly man who suffered from laryngeal cancer. He had smoked for most of his life. He came in twice a week to learn how to speak using 
a voice prosthesis, an indwelling one. <laughs> I also did not do well using the blue dye during endoscopic evaluations of swallowing. This was in the hospital setting. Honestly, I couldn't stop gagging. It was well, I appreciate your honesty. It's, it's not for everyone, but it sounds like you managed, managed through I it. I did manage. So when doing my rounds at the hospital, I encountered an elderly woman. And I'm telling these stories because you guys might feel the same way too, or you might have the same experiences. This elderly woman refused to open her mouth for a simple oral mech exam. It was supposed to be so easy. Nothing would get her to open her mouth. The doctor wished me luck and walked out the room. So I finally said, yeah, I tried to get in her shoes. I said, I know this is stupid. Why would you open your mouth for a stranger? But I really need your help. If you don't open your mouth, I could lose my job. <laughs> and I was telling her to see if she would sympathize with me. I promise I'll get you anything you want. Please open your mouth. I won't hurt you. You know, I would say all these things to have her comply. And she did finally comply. But this is just one example of many that I had to go through. For those of you who work in a hospital, I want to recommend a book. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It is an extraordinary story. It's about a man who had a massive stroke that left him completely paralyzed. His brain was functional and he knew everything that was going on around him, but he couldn't speak. He could only blink his left eyelid. It was called locked in syndrome. Have you heard of that? Yes. Yes. So with the help of others, he wrote his story. I cried. I'll be honest. It, it was sad. He wrote this book letter by letter. Someone had to say each letter of the alphabet. And when they reached that letter, he would blink his eye and he would do this for every letter, every word, every sentence until he finally finished his story. And two days after the publication of his book, he passed away and they did make a movie out of it. So you might want to look into that one, but it just gives you an idea of what patients go through, you know, mm -hmm. and how they feel. Patients dealing with results of a stroke have a great deal to manage and relearn. I had sessions in which the patient just cried for long periods of time. Our job is not just to provide hands-on therapy. We have to also help patients through the grieving process and emotional roller coaster. So we have to validate their feelings and encourage them. I had one patient who cried often. And I would say, this is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to you. I can't imagine what this feels like, but I'm here to help you. We can cry together, but we also have to do brain exercises to help you get back to normal as much as possible. So we will practice and then you must go back home and do the same thing several times a day, every day. And then I would ask, can you agree to that? I need you to promise you will try. So I would let the patient squeeze my hand or blink when responding to yes, no questions if they couldn't speak. I used augmentative and alternative communication, which we call AAC, if that was necessary. And I translated words on devices or recorded my voice in Spanish. My master's thesis, I did not tell you this, uh, was on AAC. It was around 1999 that I collected data from dozens of Hispanic families in the Bronx and cities in Westchester County, that's where I lived. I created a list of the 100 most utilized words in Spanish. And that list helped me choose the best vocabulary to create functional activities for my adults. That's great, so interesting. So at the time there wasn't any such list. Well, there was of. a list for children that I knew of and not, I think there was maybe one or two lists in Spanish at the time. So this was very helpful for me. I did. And then I transitioned to the skilled nursing facility. Do you want to hear about that? I'd love to hear about it. Okay. So during that experience, I worked with a man with muscular dystrophy. He was confined to his bed and he had muscle weakness throughout his body. And I remember when we were getting to know each other, it was a bit difficult for me to understand his speech. And I was young 
He hated when I asked him to repeat himself. And one time he was trying to tell me to change the channel on the TV because the control was not working or he wasn't able or strong enough to change it. I, I don't know what was happening, but I couldn't really understand everything he was saying. So I went to look behind the TV to try and figure out the problem. And he got so mad at me. He threw the control at me from across the room and barely missed me. Oh. So my Latina attitude came out immediately and I yelled at him. I, I thought in my head, I don't care if I get fired. This is not okay. So I told him he had to apologize. And I stood there in silence and I would have stood there the entire session in silence, waiting for him to apologize. And he did, he apologized in my time off. I, I wanted to build a rapport and, and make friends with him. So when I'd get off of work, I'd spend 15 minutes in his room reading to him. And I would, uh, he had a Bible in his room. So I picked up the Bible and read from there. The day I told him I was leaving that job, he, he asked me to marry him. Oh. <laughs> and that was unexpected. I did find volunteers to go read to him each week, but I lost contact. I, I don't know what happened after that. That was one story. So oh, be careful, SLPs, you might be asked to marry one of your patients. <laughs> I also worked with a very cranky 105-year-old lady with swallowing difficulties. She hated when I went to give her therapy, but I'm sure she hated everyone, so I didn't take it personal. She was so stubborn. We would sit in the dining hall, and there was no way she would let me touch her or give her advice on turning her head to the side to help her with the swallowing. I just made sure the meals were pureed and that she didn't choke while I was with her. I didn't want to be sued. And then there was, she was a Greek woman suffering with aphasia. She was my favorite part of my job. I started my day with her. So the first thing I did when arriving to the nursing home, at the time we called it nursing home, I know it's skilled nursing facility. I would go straight to her room we would chat, we would look through her photo albums, and I tried to learn Greek words and, and the typical fit phrases, but she would just laugh at me. It was because of that I love working with geriatrics until the day she passed away. And I was, I was heartbroken. That day, I walked into her room as usual, and her bed was empty. I searched the whole floor, and a nurse broke the news to me, and I cried for days. I didn't want to be there anymore that just traumatized me. And I left the skilled nursing facility forever after that. Oh, yeah. I am now, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was sad. I just couldn't imagine my friends dying, you know, but before you did that, you created some functional assessment activities for adults. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about dementia and, and I'll explain why in a second. So the majority of the adults I served in the skilled nursing home setting had dementia and aphasia and came to the nursing home with a box full of photo albums. So I used those photographs in therapy to get her to articulate items visible in the photos and to answer WH questions. I made a list of, you know, the Greek words that I said just to have them handy. And that is something I recommend you do as SLPs to always do for your bilingual clients, no matter the language they speak. I once had a Hispanic patient who spoke English for most of his life. And after his stroke, he was speaking mostly in Spanish. Every case is different. After a stroke, a bilingual person might start speaking with an accent. And that is called foreign accent syndrome. Or a patient might forget how to speak a native language and only speak the second language, which is bizarre. That is called bilingual aphasia. So dementia is close to my heart because I watched my grandfather slowly wither away while my mom, my mom cared for him. He sometimes left the house and got lost. So thank God for, for good neighbors. He sometimes called me by my mom's name. Sometimes he wanted to play with his grandchildren as if he were a child. He eventually stopped walking and then was confined to a bed. He stopped eating. His body became frozen on the bed until the day he stopped breathing. But I think this experience motivated me to help the elderly. The experience helped me to know how to speak with them and, and know what works. For the adults with dementia, 
I worked on reading a clock, understanding maps and working with money. There were no Spanish workbooks available. So I was forced to create my own materials and translate them. I saw the same problem in Mexico. There were so many classroom textbooks, but no therapy workbooks. All of the materials are now either outdated or irrelevant, right? Now we use GPS, see time on our phones, use credit cards instead of money. So SLPs with adult clients need therapy materials that are more appropriate for the time and the population we serve. Pictures should be in color and reflect activities that are relevant to their age. If you're reading word sentences or paragraphs with them, make sure that everything is in large print. That is my recommendation. My SLP supervisor at the skilled nursing facility was so easy to work with. She was great. She shared all her materials, but a lot of them were just not useful. So I created things and translated them when needed. There were so many therapy needs in the medical field at that time. So I have mentored several SLPs over the past couple of years. Their questions led me to update all of my materials to translate and publish bilingual books for therapy. So before I retire, I want to publish all of my materials to be used by new SLPs. So my goal is to educate and make therapy easier for SLPs, for bilingual clients, their caregivers, for bilingual students and, and their teachers. Mm -hmm. Well, that is wonderful. And so you went from the skilled nursing facility to the schools. And so now you're in the school. So let's focus a little bit on the schools now, if that's okay. Sure. So what is the first thing that SLP should know when working with bilingual students? I think it is very important to understand federal law as it relates to the assessment of bilingual populations. IDEA stands for Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and that guarantees a free and appropriate public education to children with disabilities. IDEA law has many parts, and what I want to do right now is review six points of the law, and this is what I do with the SLPs at my school district. So let's go through a few points. Great. The first thing it says is to use a variety of assessment tools and strategies to gather relevant functional, developmental, and academic information, including information provided by the parent. So often we administer several tests but forget to go back and implement strategies to gather relevant information. For example, if a child with an ADHD diagnosis scores low on the memory index of the test of auditory processing skills that indicating poor immediate and working memory, when you administer the self, if the only low scores are on subtests that tap on immediate working memory, then you can tell that it's due more to the ADHD than a true language disorder. So the child doesn't do well on following directions, for example. How do you know if it is due to the language deficit rather than the ADHD? You administer it again. You re-administer the subtest given extra repetitions. And if the child can follow the instructions given the accommodation, then the issue is solved by providing that accommodation in the classroom setting, not by adding special education services. Okay, here's the next point. Test to use a variety of assessment tools and strategies, including information provided by the parent. So how often do we truly include the parents in the assessment process? It isn't enough to request they fill out a developmental questionnaire. You need to provide a standardized rating scale as well, such as the ABAS or the developmental profile. And both of those come in English and Spanish. You have to make sure you ask if the student has a history of ear infections, because that has many implications. For 10 years, I worked closely with an audiologist while translating her evaluations. Children who are mouth breathers likely drink whole milk, okay? And they are swollen overall. They snore when they sleep. They possibly have allergies. The longer they have fluid sitting in the middle ear, the further behind they are in communication skills. Be and why? Because an infection takes about three months to clear, according to the audiologist. So if a child had four or five year infections during infancy, times that by three months, how long is that? A child who had four ear infections could be 12 months behind in communication skills. Okay, also ask what language each parent spoke during their childhood. You can't assume 
parents speak Spanish just because the intake form says they're from Mexico or Guatemala. You can't. I frequently get cases of students who have a parent in the home speaking an indigenous language. In Georgia, here in my district, I frequently meet families who speak Triqui, Canjobal, Mixteco, Nahuatl, and Mam. Okay. I learned that Triqui is spoken in Oaxaca, Mexico, and there are three mountain areas and the indigenous people living in those mountains speak different versions of Triqui. So imagine how difficult it is to communicate with each other. But it's important to know if you're dealing with a child who's exposed to three languages, because then even the Spanish test scores are invalid. Another part of the law, and I forgot to mention, we're looking at section 1414 part B entitled uh, titled evaluation procedures. Okay. It says cannot use any single measure or assessment as the sole criterion for determining whether a child is a child with a disability or determining an appropriate educational program for the child. For example, a child entered kindergarten only knowing Spanish. His behaviors were uncontrollable. He did not follow basic instructions or routines. He roamed the classroom, he growled, he hid under tables. He was placed in a special education preschool as one of the steps in RTI and MTSS. So RTI stands for response to intervention and MTSS stands for multi-tiered system of supports. RTI is part of MTSS. And most teachers, most districts in the country should know what that is. And when they did this, the hope was that his behaviors and communication skills would improve, but it's illegal. You cannot provide a more restrictive environment without proper assessment or parental consent. Teachers assumed he was disabled. And when the team assessed him in vocabulary and nonverbal IQ, they were within normal limits on Spanish testing. So this is why there's a disproportionate number of minorities in special education. We need to follow protocol. Another part of the law says assessments are selected and administered so as not to be discriminatory on a racial or cultural basis. And the assessments or measures are valid and reliable. We have to be careful when administering tests such as the CASEL or the OWLs to bilinguals. The CASEL, for example, was standardized on a sample of less than 2,400 students, all of which were English speakers. So make sure you report that the scores on those tests are not valid, nor an accurate measure of the student's overall language skills when assessing bilinguals, okay? They are used merely to describe the student's level of English language skills. Another part of the law, assessment is provided and administered in the language and form most likely to yield accurate information on what the child knows unless it isn't feasible. Okay, so IED, IDEA includes all areas of development, the five areas, cognitive, communication, social, adaptive, and motor skills. If it is feasible, meaning if it is possible, test in all the child's languages, especially the dominant one. All states have access to Spanish interpreters, either by video call or in person. Many companies provide standardized Spanish tests and schools should have a budget for interpreters and for purchasing materials in order to comply with federal law. We are part of a team responsible for making sure our school districts are compliant. Okay, here's another part. I think this is the last part of the law. The child must be assessed in all areas of suspected disability. So unfortunately, if a student has behavior or reading problems, for example, Teams at some schools may recommend testing for speech therapy just because they believe it is the easiest way to get into special education. That is not okay. The law is clear. The school team must test in all areas of suspected disability. And that is all I have to say about the law. Was that a lot? Was that good? <laughs> that was a lot and that was good. I have a few clarifying questions. Sure. So let's say that you have a child who speaks language other than English or Spanish that you don't have access to an interpreter and but you they've come across your caseload and your district does not provide an interpreter what do you recommend wow that is difficult so i recommend lots of observations do not do a full evaluation right off the bat i need you to 
yes, get parent input if it's at all possible, but do pre and post test. This we call, can, can I talk about dynamic assessment? Yep. Yep. Okay. So dynamic assessment involves pre and post screenings or tests. Okay. It also involves observations in different settings over time to see if and how the student is learning. So the evaluator can intervene to see if students' performance improves. You can discover if a student requires strategies or accommodations to keep up with peers. Testing should be a collaborative effort between the evaluators, the teachers, and the parents. That is what I wanna stress, okay? It's a collaboration. For dynamic assessment, SLPs should, number one, give a parent rating scale to get a view of how the student functions at home. Now, I know the question was, what do you do if they don't speak English or Spanish, if it doesn't exist? Do your best. I mean, the best we can do is get observations and research the phonological aspects of that language, just to see if you can find differences or similarities, okay? Number two, observe the student in a high academic-based classroom versus a special area class, okay? The student might not perform well in a science class, but might appear gifted in art. So it's only fair to observe both settings. And three, interview the student. I find this very helpful. Over the years, I have created self-analysis questionnaires because a student is usually very honest in reporting what makes learning difficult. And on rare occasions, the problem is the teacher, not the student. For example, the teaching style might not work for the student. The teacher might have a lack of knowledge in bilingualism or isn't able to control behaviors in the classroom, right? And this is where cultural diversity plays a part. I hope I answered your question. Yes, yes, yes. I would also think that um, when reporting that, it's important to note that English is not their first language, what you know, what their first language is, and that an interpreter was not available. Correct, not available, and that whatever scores you do obtain are not valid. Yes. Yes, okay. All right, well, let's talk about some of those cultural differences that you might find in the school. Okay, let me define cultural diversity, and then I'll give you some examples. Wonderful, thank you. Yeah, cultural diversity refers to the variety of cultural or ethnic groups within a society. Culture shapes us, shapes our identity, and influences our behaviors. Most of the countries in Latin America speak Spanish. However, each one has a history, its its landscape, its music, way of dressing, and unique regional words. So for example, In Puerto Rico, the word China refers to an orange fruit. However, in most other countries, it means Chinese woman. When living in Mexico, I remember hearing the word cacahuate, which is a Nahuatl indigenous word for peanut. Very different than mantequilla de maní, which is butter of peanut, meaning peanut butter. Because when I heard cacahuate, I immediately heard caca, which is it's related to poop. So I was confused when I heard the word. Also, torta in Spanish, in the Spanish culture, in one Spanish culture could could mean cake, right? But in another, it means a sandwich. So you have to know who you're speaking with in order to communicate effectively. So there are differences between the Hispanic culture and mainstream American culture that I think I should mention. The first is language. The student may use sentence structure from one language to speak the other. So we as SLPs have to determine if code switching between the languages is done appropriately. We differ by ethnicity, meaning food, music, dress. For example, I eat rice and beans at home frequently. I listen to Shakira and J Balvin, the Caribbean men wear guayaberas is a a certain type of shirt that they wear near the beach in beach areas. But that's very different than what mainstream American people would listen to. We also differ by religious practices. So I, for one, go to church in Spanish. I do prayers in Spanish. My terms of endearment for my children are in my native language. English speakers might say, oh my goodness, but Spanish speakers might call for Virgencita, which is the Virgin Mary. So, you know, there's just differences in that. The cultural norms and rules could be different. So, for example, 
girls can cut their hair at a certain age. So they'll wear long hair until dad gives permission. Usually dads don't like their girls dating until much later than in the American culture. And it is, it is acceptable for our children at a young age to watch soap operas, novelas. And if you think about the things you see in a soap opera, you know, it's questionable, but our children tend to be street smart before they are book smart. Another way that we differ is family expectations and priorities are, are different. So by age 12, for example, I was cooking the family dinner because my parents were working late. Some boys are expected to work with their dad to help make money. Girls clean house. Girls might miss school to care for a sibling while the parents are at work. So those are things that make our culture different. Students may be different learners too. So they might not follow school rules and classroom rules like others. So for example, I'll give you an example. At school, we had a kindergarten girl who would throw the toilet paper on the floor next to the toilet every day. So in this case, teachers might say the girl had an adaptive skills deficit. But when I asked the mom about it, she said that they lived in a trailer, can't throw paper in the toilet because it will clog the system. So there was no trash bin in the school bathroom stall. She'd throw it on the floor. So problem solved. She's not, she's not impaired. She doesn't need special education. We just need to understand where the family's coming from, where this girl comes from. Our kids might react differently to authority. So, you know, our families, not all, but some do fear deportation. There's a fear of discrimination. Families even have plans in case a parent is arrested and deported. So it's, it's kind of a sad situation, but, you know, the, our, our, the way we look at authority could be different. And even in school, you know, authority figures in school. Eye contact and verbal responses might be different. So they might not look at you when you're speaking to them. They may speak in a lower voice or not at all. And just a side note, bilinguals may go through a silent period for up to a year. So a kindergartner who is new to school and new to the language might just stare at you and never speak. It doesn't mean they are speech impaired. It just means they're learning the language and this is a natural process. And this is why I am not a proponent of kindergarten screeners. I think children need to have that time to adjust to the classroom, adjust to the language, and then we can figure it out from there. And students can differ in the manner of learning. So this is where ESOL comes into play. Are you okay if we talk a little bit about ESOL strategies? I am perfect. You don't have to ask me permission. <laughs> There's just so much to say and, and I'm trying to fit it in, you know. To- I know. Well, you know, an hour is not a very long time. So, and you have a lot to say. So we'll have to have you either come back for another podcast or maybe a short course. So, okay. so just, uh, we'll talk about what we can get to tonight and we're, and we're moving along just fine. So go okay. ahead. Okay, so let's talk about ESOL strategies. Students can definitely receive services from both the ESOL program and speech therapy, special education. Okay, so this is what I want you to do with those students who are in ESOL, who are learning English, okay? I want you to use as many of the five senses as possible when teaching new concepts. Try to stimulate hearing, seeing, and touching when teaching. And if you can possibly include smell and taste, that would be great. So when teaching a new concept or vocabulary word, I frequently use drawing. That is my favorite thing to do. And why do you think? Because it involves visualizing, seeing, right, the object, touching the pencil, guiding it on the paper, and it adds an element of emotion, feeling something about your drawing. So almost always this technique helps my students improve word retrieval, improve concept knowledge, and increase curriculum vocabulary. Many of my workbooks include drawing activities. That is something that's important to me. And I have a few other ESOL strategies for you. You have to use visual aids, So for example, tap syllables on blocks for individuals working on articulation or when teaching about the ocean, for example, write on seashells and put them in water, hide pictures in sand, show a video of the new concept. I always show a video before speaking about anything. 
It can be about volcanoes, bees, maps. It, it, it just helps students visualize what I'm teaching. I also want you to, oh, here's a note. Do not assume that ESOL students have prior cultural knowledge. So for example, I live in a city that is surrounded by a huge lake. Uh, you can get to the lake in any direction. It's a huge lake. And I have middle schoolers who have lived here all their life who have never gone to the lake, okay? So you can't assume teaching a lesson about a lake or water and you live near a lake that these children have gone, they, they haven't. I have students act out new vocabulary and concepts. So if they're learning about maps, for example, go on a treasure hunt using a compass, okay? Speak slower than usual to allow for process of information. Increase your wait time for responses. Check frequently for understanding, use concept mapping, support them in the content areas as much as possible, and provide homework assignments in the first language to practice at home and bridge the gap. So if you can at all use a translation device or somehow get the assignments translated, send them home. Parents are more than willing to help. You just have to tell them what to do. SLP should consider modifying their activities in a way that is easier to understand for bilinguals, okay? Several SLPs have asked me what they should do when working on inference skills, for example. And all I can say is please use real life experiences that are relevant to the bilinguals. Do not use stories they've never heard before to predict and make inferences. Like I grew up listening to Hansel and Gretel. You, you mentioned Hansel and Gretel right now. They won't have any clue what you're talking about. But if you mention La Llorona or Chupacabra, they all should know what that is. I remember one little girl in kindergarten she cried after listening to the gingerbread man. She couldn't understand how this boy came out of the oven and he was running and she was like, no, they're going to catch him. And then he finally gets eaten and she just cried the rest of the afternoon. So, you know, we just have to prep them for these stories a little more because these are not typical stories that we would listen to in our culture. When working on inferences, here are possible questions. For example, pretend your little brother is hungry and mommy's still not home from work what should you do? You know, that's more relevant to what they might be living through. Maria's hitting a pinata with a long stick. She's blindfolded. Many children are standing near her. What might happen next? So, you know, you can have them predict what might happen to those kids make inferences. Okay. Those are more, that's more relevant for WH questions. Do the same, make it relevant to the classroom curriculum and connect their life experiences. So here's one book that my district has their kids reading. It's Charlotte's Web. That's just a common book. And here's an excerpt from page seven. Okay. It says, Fern was seated on the floor in the corner of the kitchen with her infant between her knees, teaching it to suck from the bottle. The pig, although tiny, had a good appetite and caught on quickly. Okay. So what I would do in this situation is find a cognate. What does infant mean? Because in Spanish, it's infante, okay? So the same word, fine cognates. Bottle means a botella, okay? I'm translating. What things come in a bottle? So I have them visualize. What do you think is in a bottle, in the bottle that Fern prepared for the pig, okay? And does anyone in your family suck from a bottle? Are there any infants in your family? So have them talk about their experience. That is, you know, a way to connect. A book that I absolutely love to present to my fifth and sixth graders is called Wish. Have you ever heard of that book? Mm -hmm. I love that book. So an excerpt from page five. I don't need a crystal ball to know that at this very minute in our house in Raleigh, smack dab in the middle of the day, mama is in bed with the curtains drawn and empty soda cans on the nightstand. She will stay in that bed the live long day. If I was there, she wouldn't care one little bit if I went to school or stayed on the couch watching TV and eating cookies for lunch. So this is what I would do. I would constantly stop and I tie life experiences to the lesson, set the stage by connecting emotions. So what does this mom's room look like? Is it messy? Is it dark? Visualize, right? Does your mom stay in bed all day? What things do you think your mom does while you're at school? And would your mom let you eat cookies for lunch? Why or why not? You know, those kinds of things to get them to connect. Have you ever heard of the book, Death by Toilet Paper? I have not. I read this to all my sixth graders. 
So it's a story about a boy's experience living with a grandfather who suffered from Alzheimer's. His father had passed away and they were living in poverty and his mother was struggling to pay the rent and the bills. And the book allows for students to work on making inferences and predicting. So I, I work with students who come from low-income families. So the book is relatable to them. So I just ask SLPs to find books that could be relatable to their students. And these are just examples of how SLPs can make it more engaging for bilinguals. Well, thank you for those examples. Now, sometimes there is some confusion mm -hmm. about whether a child should be receiving SLP services or enrolled in ESOL. And you, how, how do you guide other people in your district or at your school when, when there is confusion about that? It's taken many years to get to change the mindset of some directors and, and not because they don't want to help. They just don't know how, right? It is very, very important that we connect, that we bridge the two languages. We just have to. There's, and there's so much research on this. The wonderful thing about providing materials in the student's native language is that their family can become involved, okay, in the learning process. The parents begin to trust you, and that's what we really need in order to make a difference with these students. It, when the parents trust you, they're willing to contact you, right, with questions. And if a parent understands the importance of investing time in the child's learning, then you've won the lottery, basically. I promise it'll be worth the effort, and I say this to them constantly, we need to do more parent workshops and and try to learn more about the culture. If you don't have tools to translate worksheets, then you're more than welcome to look at my workbooks. There are things out there in English and Spanish that you can do in therapy and then send home in the same language, in the same activity in the other language. And I get, I'm contacted by special education teachers, dual language programs, ESOL teachers, Spanish teachers. I love hearing their comments and, and they do all say that it helps. And I'll give you some research to back that up. Let's see, because our goal as SLPs, you know, um, should be to help the child meet IEP objectives, right? As quickly as possible. So students shouldn't be in speech therapy their entire academic career. We have to do something better. In 2017, this study was interesting. Collier and Thomas summarized 32 years of research from all longitudinal studies conducted in 36 school districts. Listen to this, in 16 U.S. states, okay? That was more than 7.5 million student records analyzed. And they were following English language learners, okay? They were from all language backgrounds, not just Spanish. And they were in grades K through 12. The studies were very generalizable to all regions and contexts of the U.S. and have been replicated in other countries, okay? They showed that teaching bilinguals in only English closes about half of the achievement gap between English learners and native English speakers, okay? But students who are taught in both languages close all of the gap after five to six years of schooling through the students' first and second languages. That's impressive. Okay, a study titled Language Intervention from a Bilingual Mindset reviewed several experimental studies that show that bilingual children learn new vocabulary in their second language, meaning English, more rapidly when it is initially presented in their first language. In a clinical intervention study comparing the efficacy of a monolingual intervention to that of a bilingual intervention in which both languages were used, within the same therapy session, the bilingual method was more efficacious with the child learning more English words in bilingual sessions than in monolingual sessions. So you see, it's very important. One more research done by Ellen Bialystok showed that the experience of controlling attention to two languages boosts the development of executive control processes in childhood for bilinguals. It also sustains cognitive control advantages for bilinguals throughout adulthood and protects bilingual older adults from the decline of these processes with aging. So it's important to bridge the gap using two languages. Absolutely. So for SLPs, you've given us some suggestions, but how about for, I know you don't necessarily, you know, work in the regular classroom, but are those 
those suggestions carry over to the regular classroom? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. For the regular classroom too. If you are teaching a regular classroom with in only English, do the same for your bilingual students. They, I mean, parents are willing to do whatever you, you say they need to do if they have the time. How about to the parent who says though, no, I want them to learn English. So I don't, I don't want them to be for their education. I want them to be learning in English so they can keep up with their English speaking peers. What What is your that is, answer to that? That is a great point. I mean, I only send the assignments in Spanish if I know the parent speaks mostly Spanish. I never offer it to the parent who is English, who is fluent in English, because I know they will be speaking in English to the child. But I'm saying the parent who is Spanish speaking, but for their child, they want them to be using English in the academic setting. In all the 20 years I've worked, I've never had one case where a parent refused to help their child in that language, in the native language. Okay, well, that is a good answer to that question. Maybe it's not that good of a question, Christine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if they refuse, then you just don't do it. Right. But at least offer it, at least offer it. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So anything else that you would like to add about teaching culturally diverse students or adapting therapy? Well, I'll just repeat, as I said before, amazing progress is noted when teachers link English lessons with the child's native language. I'm lucky enough to speak Spanish fluently, and that allows me to facilitate my students' transition, right, between the two languages. Because my students' parents know I speak their language, they're more willing to respond to my phone calls, uh, fill out paperwork, show up for meetings, and attend parent workshops. It's just the reality. They're just more comfortable. And in order to achieve this, teachers and SLPs must be willing to find a way to communicate in the parent's language. Mm-hmm. Monolingual SLPs do not have to be afraid, though, to serve bilingual clients. Okay, I, w- I want you guys to feel comfortable. They just want to be validated and understood. That's all. So take the time to learn about their culture and language. Don't be afraid to ask questions about their home life once you've shared about yours. Okay. When I worked in the middle school, here's an example. My students would frequently come into my office complaining about their teachers. Teachers would get easily frustrated with them. You know, at that age, it's it's a difficult age. But why did they feel so comfortable with me? I can't imagine it's only because I spoke their native language, right? They looked at me more like a family figure. There was not a day I did not offer a snack the moment they walked in my room. So I was like, mommy there. If a student's belly's full, they will learn better. That's just the reality. I often gave anecdotes about my childhood before presenting them with a question. So for example, here's an example. I failed reading in fourth grade, okay? And that's a true story. I hated reading because I didn't know how to do it. I was a slow reader because I wouldn't practice. It didn't mean I was stupid. It just meant I needed more practice. And that's what I would tell my kids. So many of my bilinguals are slow readers and say they hate reading. And in my room, we practice reading and answering questions for 15 minutes each session. I did book studies with them, which is why I use examples from the book Wish and, you know, the other ones I gave. I gave them choices to pick from. We read books that were also movies to help them visualize the characters as I read to them. I use examples from TV shows, actors, athletes, musicians they would know about. And that, they would talk a lot on the topic. So do the same with your adult clients too. find out their favorite hobbies and shows. And that might help to, you know, to drive therapy. Excellent advice. Okay. So you've mentioned some case studies throughout Were there any others that you wanted to mention specifically? Yeah, I did tell you a lot of case studies. Um, (laughs) Well, what I do want SLPs to know, uh, let me mention this really fast about bilingual students, okay? Because this might help you understand a little better about their background, okay? 42%, this is the prevalence, 42% of Hispanic students live in a single parent home, okay? Usually it's the dad who is absent in the home, and it's important to bond with your students in some way so they learn to trust you and they want to learn from you, okay? And I wish classroom teachers would do the same. Many of them live in poverty, 
In 2019, a research publication titled An Economic Portrait of Low-Income Hispanic Families from the National Research Center on Hispanic Children and Families. Okay, they reported that Hispanic children are twice as likely to live in poverty as white children. And many live in deep poverty. And it includes over 2 million children in the US. Okay, so just think about this when you're serving them. About 7% of them end up dropping out of high school. So just care a little more and try to spend more time getting to know them. So that way therapy is more effective later on. You might not be able to engage them well until you, you get them to trust you. And that's what I wanted to, to mention. Well, thank you. So important. You've also, you're part of a mentorship program, BEAM, and yes. you've also mentioned that there's additional there are needs for additional mentorship programs with SLPs working with bilingual students. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Clinical practicums are so important to help us gain experience and guide us toward our specialization. Some SLPs choose to work in the hospital setting, some in clinics, some in schools. Some SLPs specialize in stuttering or autism spectrum disorders or dementia, et cetera. The thing is that all of these areas include bilinguals, no matter what you choose. And I feel there's a huge need for educating monolingual SLPs about culturally and linguistically diverse populations. There's also a great need for educating new bilingual SLPs with regards to federal law and assessment. So I currently mentor bilingual SLPs across the U.S. through a fairly new program called BEAM SLP. It stands for Bilingual Empowerment Through Allied Mentorship. It was founded by Sarah Gonzalez at a bilingual SLP and Ingrid Owens at My Speech Blend. These ladies are doing great things, collaborating with many professionals and improving bilingual therapy practices one semester at a time. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So how would someone get involved in that? Either uh, as a mentor or a mentee? Just go to what I just told you or search BMSLP on Instagram. It's easy to find. And you can mentor and be a mentee. You just have to register and it's easy and it's free. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we have a few more minutes. I wanted to remind everyone that if you're taking this course for live CEUs, be sure to go to your speechtherapypd.com account by the end of the day today and complete all the course modules, including the one that says quiz. All right. So um, there's one book that um, in preparing for this, um, you've written so many books and therapy materials, but there was one book that really caught my eye that I thought would be useful to talk about and share. And for all of you who can see, oh, oh, it's called Unusual Her. This yes, is have it too. <laughs> yes. And this is uh, well, you take it away, Christina. Tell us about this book. And this seems like a, a just a really useful and, and unique book that so many of us could benefit from. Yes. I loved collaborating with several young women about their middle school experience. We obtained permission from their parents and these girls were more than willing to share their story. All of them had different experiences. One of them, for example, has autism and she, would you like me to read some parts of the book? Well, we do only have a couple minutes. Okay, so so let, why don't we just describe the premise of the book a little bit more? So you interviewed or you didn't interview, you collaborated and wrote the book with five or six different individuals. Yes. And they were interviews and the book is written in their own words. One of them, for example, like I said, has autism. Another one was referred to as a bully. So some emotional behavioral issues with her. Another one suffers from sensory issues and obsessive compulsive disorder. Another one has ADHD. And there was one who was raped and she speaks about her story. And another one who went through poverty throughout her childhood. And I just love that each story is different, but can be something we see in middle school children. And I think the book helps to open our minds to what could be going on with our students and understand why they're learning the way they're learning. 
one thing that I have learned about you is you take an idea and you run with it like you did when you were working in Mexico and, and developing the, the guide for parents and early intervention and to middle school, working with different students and um, the culturally diverse populations. So thank you for sharing your experiences with us. And it was really great to get to know you. And I hope you come back sometime either to Keys for SLPs or to speechtherapypd.com. You have so much to offer. So thank you and have a great evening. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.